Today's, today's scripture reading is taken from 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 21. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. Thank you, Esther. I'm going to ask you to stay here for just a minute because I feel obligated to give a public service announcement. Eunice, come and stand here with us. Just for point of clarification, this is Eunice. This is Esther. <laughs> Esther is our missionary. Will be with us another month and then heading back to the field. Eunice is the one that's getting married. Esther, not yet. We can still pray. <laughs> you can tell them apart because they both wear glasses. Okay, I don't know. You just have to know that this is Esther and this is Eunice. Thank you, sisters, <laughs> for tolerating all the questions about when are you getting married again and when are you heading out to the field? Bless you both. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I had an amazing experience this week. Uh, a dear brother asked to meet with me. Now, <clears throat> as a pastor, when an older brother in the church asked to meet with you, you don't always assume that you've done something wrong. But you do almost always assume something is wrong. And so this, this brother, he asked me to meet with him, and we had a, a nice uh, coffee together, and uh, we talked about everything except any reason why we were meeting. And I was still kind of waiting for the reason. Uh, so I asked him, is everything okay? Yeah, 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 Pastor, everything's fine. And then he came to the reason. He said, so, Pastor, you've been here, what, two years, two months? I said, yeah. How are you feeling? He said, how are you feeling? I said, I feel awesome. Sherry's away seeing her mom. I can eat whatever I want to. And he said, no, no, how, how are you feeling about things at the church? Are you, are you doing okay? Now, that by itself is awesome. But, but the fact that that kind of conversation has happened with me like seven or eight times in two years and two months, it begins to indicate a pattern that seems to suggest that some of you, bless your hearts, 
think that pastoring at Grace is about the worst thing anyone could possibly do in life. And, and so every once in a while, I just got to check up, are, are, are you doing okay? Now, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. I'm the son of a lumberjack. But, but I, I'm assuming you, you feel like there's a reputation. And two years ago, when I attended my first Baptist pastor's fellowship, and, and they said, oh, where are you pastoring? I said, Grace. They went, oh. I'm assuming there's a reputation. I just wanted to declare that day over. Uh, you are not the worst church I've ever pastored. You are the best church I've ever pastored. You're, you're just by far the best church I have ever pastored. You, you are better people than I have ever pastored. You are more gifted than any church I've ever pastored. <laughs> you have a higher education level than any church I've ever pastored. You, you are willing to do whatever more than any church I've ever pastored. But I still pray the same prayer that I pray at every other church that I've ever pastored, and that prayer is, oh God, just let me see you at work here. Let me see some evidence of the most high, all-powerful creator God doing in our midst what only he can do. Let me see something that cannot be dismissed by gifted people. Let me see something that cannot be explained by, oh, that pastor has charisma. Let, 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 let us see something that isn't the result of strategic planning, but just a result of a glorious God doing glorious things. So here's what John demands of us this morning. This Oops, crashed. It's actually the last slide I was on, sorry. This is the question he asks of us. The, the, the central question in regard to our life together as God's people, the gathered church here on Mata Road. When the world looks at us, do they see the kind of love that can only be explained by the supernatural work of God. When they look at us, when they experience us, do they experience the kind of love that is not explained by religion, not explained by us being people in the first world, but can only be explained by the supernatural intervention of a loving God. Uh, this morning, I was rereading something I came upon in the middle of the week. It was a prayer that was prayed by A.W. Tozer while he was pastoring a great church. And before we go to the text this morning, I would like for us to bow our heads while I read this prayer prayed by a man who had seen many great things in his ministry. Let's pray together. Father God, 
Let us see your glory. If it must be, let us see your glory from the shelter of the cleft of the rock and from beneath the protection of thy covering hand. Whatever the cost to us in loss of friends or goods or length of days, let us know you as you are so that we might adore you as we should. For the world is evil. The times are waxing late and your glory has departed from your church as the fiery cloud once lifted from the door of the temple in the sight of Ezekiel. O God of Abraham, you have withdrawn your conscious presence from us. And another God, a God whom our fathers knew not, is making himself at home among us. This God we have made. And because we have made him, we can understand him. Because we have created him, he can never surprise us, never overwhelm us, never astonish us, nor transcend us. Oh God, surprise us with your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 12 of chapter 4 is a transition verse in a very long sermon on love. It is this sermon that he tried to include other things, but kept being distracted by the Spirit of the God of love to come back to the topic of love. This is the transition verse. It occurs towards the end of this little letter, but it's really the central theme of the letter. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. This is the critical transition point for though a man like Ian would cry out, God, let me see you at work. Though a man like Moses would say, oh God, show me your glory. Though Philip, the disciple, would say, Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Though we seek it, no one has seen God. But, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected, meaning, as you heard last week, fully fruited out in us, fully obvious in us. It's amazing to me how many Malaysians don't know what a durian tree looks like until it's fruited out. When they see the fruit, then they go, durian is probably true of all of us in an apple tree. I had an apple tree in my back compound, so I know what the leaves look like, but for most of us, we wouldn't recognize an apple tree until it was fully fruited out. Then we know apple tree. And it's true of the church. Until we are fully fruited out, people don't really know what manner of people we are. Religious, yes. But love, still waiting to see. People, yes. But people of God still waiting 
to see. And so all of us long to see God, see Him in His glory. And just like Moses, I would want to be that man who would say, yes, that's a risky proposition. Let me see your glory, though. I, I want to see it for my own eyes. And remember in Exodus 33, God said, you cannot tolerate my glory. But hide yourself in this cleft of the rock and I will use my hand as a, as a veil and I will pass you by and show you my back. <laughs> I love that. You, you can see the back of me. What, what D.A. Carson called this trailing edge, this glow at the edge of his glory. You, you, you can see that covered by the veil of my hand, only after I've passed by, you will see the residue of my glory. Now John then closes this very long sermon with this word on evidence of the trailing edge of the afterglow of God's glory. And the first evidence we can see in verses 13 through 16. He begins in 13 by saying, uh, this is something we can know. Uh, not, not hope. This is a different word than hope. It's not saying you can faith it. Even though you've never experienced it, just trust me. He's saying this we know, that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us his spirit. Do you understand what he's saying here? He, he's saying that our flesh has become the veil. It, it's become like that curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from God's people. Our, our flesh, when Christ painfully hung between, in the gap between God's wrath and His judgment. Rem remember that message last week. Christ painfully hung in the gap, pleaded our case, not just forgave us, but became a high priest and said, Oh Lord, have mercy. At that very moment, the wrath of God was satisfied in that great temple shroud that represented the hand of God to protect his people from his holy glory, it was torn from top to bottom and the Shekinah glory that dwelt there, meaning Shekinah, meaning the settled glory of God, burst out of that holy place and entered into the new temples made holy by the sacrifice on the cross. His settled glory in His Spirit, resides in His people, that's how you can know that you abide in Him and He abides in you because He has done His work on the cross. This is why He says in verses 14 and 15, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Do you understand? That's why every person that walks into the grave here, we ask them to give us a testimony. Tell us what you believe. It's not whether or not they understand the details, the nuances, the content of the gospel. It's has Christ come to live in you? 
has he cleansed you and made your flesh his residential palace? Can you bear testimony of that? That is called gospeling. Gospeling is not memorizing a canned sales presentation. It's simply saying, I know this to be true. I once was dead. He's made me alive in him. I once was a dirty, empty shell of a man. He filled me up with his glory. I live because he lives in me. This is what he did. He hung in his place so we could one day stand in his place. I declare that. He has done that work in me. That is the kind of God who loves. He has done it. Verse 16, or excuse me, this, this is important. I, I need to say this, so you need to really pay attention. Uh, Jesus did not say, the world will know you are my disciples because you've memorized all my teaching. He didn't say, the world will know you're my disciples because you gather once a week, you sing happy songs, you pray, and you give to the ministries of the church. He did not say, the world will know you're my disciples because, wow, look how often you go to BSF or CG. That's how the world knows you're religious, because you study the dogma. This is how the world will know that we are Christ's disciples because of our love for one another. That is not something that normally happens anywhere in the world without the intervention of a most high God because we are all different from one another. This past week, a gangster got murdered in jail in America. I won't mention his name. You probably read about it. You would think a gangster would be safe with a group of gangsters. They're all the same. Fellowship. You know what? Fellowship just reminds us how different we are unless Christ has made us the same. Unless he has loved us that much that his love is bubbling up and fruiting out in us. So when the world looks at this church, do they see that kind of love? Because you understand that building this building informs McPherson that there's a church in the neighborhood. Loving one another informs McPherson that there's a God in the neighborhood who is at work even today bringing people together to be one, to love each other in ways that are unimaginable, unconditionally. Not because the pastors perform well do you love pastors. Not because members are faithful do pastors love members. It's we can't help ourselves. It's love that belongs to the one who resides in us. That is him loving his people. And so how? God's people will intentionally steward the affection of Christ to one another. We will actively look for ways 
to love one another because this is how he has chosen to put himself on display. He, he did not decide that the world would know he is God through Christian apologetics. He decided that the world would know him through this unconditional, sacrificial love that his people put into practice day after day, Sunday after Sunday. He calls us to steward his affection so that he can continue to say, this is a place that I could live. There's a second evidence. By the way, someone mentioned that you can always tell who's preaching by the fact that when I'm preaching, there's no outline. That gives you room to draw pictures, if you like. The second evidence of God is confidence, no, no fear. Beginning in verse 17, by this is love perfected in us. So second evidence, how you can tell that it's fruited out. First, we know that His Spirit lives in us. Because you've heard me to say, you say this before, I didn't get affection from my Scottish immigrant parents. My father was afraid to love his children because he felt it would make us soft and ill-prepared for a rough life. He loved us, but couldn't tell us that. It's called immigrant love, by the way, just in case you have an immigrant parent. Love is perfected in us or with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. That, that word confidence is fascinating to me. It actually is usually applied to speech, me meaning it's the kind of speech that doesn't need to deflect a question. It doesn't need a pause before a response while I'm trying to unravel all the things I have said to make sure the next thing I said is consistent with the last thing I said. It's the kind of speech that doesn't need for me to consult my attorney who's my defender. It's the kind of speech that comes out of a heart that is fully transparent, who, who, who lives with lots of fences in his life. So I had this experience one time when uh, my supervisor on, on the mission board uh, came to visit us. And uh, he asked if he could use my computer. I said, no problem, take, take my computer. And, and I left, I think, to make coffee or something. I, I came back, he said, by the way, I've searched all your, your search history on the internet. And I was like, oh, okay, no, no problem. I, I told a friend that story, and they were so outraged. Like, that is violating your privacy. You know what? I don't have privacy. I have confidence. No, I, I, I don't know if my supervisor thought he would catch me sneaking around, but he didn't. Because I already had a covenant relationship with three young men in my home, my sons. We already agreed. Anytime you want to look at anything on your desk, computer. You can go and see any website I've been on. And by the way, I will do the same for you. That's confidence. We have this confidence. Why? 
Because you know who it was who was hanging painfully in the gap of the Father's wrath and judgment? It was the judge. Scripture says Christ will be the ultimate judge. The judge died for you so that you could be perfect without spot or wrinkle, lacking in nothing, so that he could present you with great joy and without fault. We have this confidence because it was a judge who died. It was a judge who cleansed me. It was a judge who lives in me in all his glory. I, I wasn't there when my uh, dad died. I, I was in the area, but I wasn't at his bedside. So when I got to his bedside, of course, it was only his body there. My brother was there, my sister-in-law, and a nurse on the other side of the bed. And one of us was crying. It was the nurse and uh, I, I thought to myself, wow, these, these nurses, they, they really care. They, they, I mean, this is ministry to them. And so I, I kind of went over and to her and I said, are, are, are you okay? And she said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. It's just that. It's just that. And then she motioned to my dad's body and she said, I, I, don't, I don't have that. I, I said, um, you don't have what? She said, confidence. My brother's not usually the funny one. He just looked up from our dad's bed and said, oh, he had confidence because he knows the judge. Christians die different. This insane confidence. And the opposite of confidence is phobos in Greek. Phobia, fear. Perfect love fills us with confidence, not in our own ability. We are also humans, men and women of dust. We have confidence in the glory who resides in this temple. That's why when we baptize people in this grave, we, we don't tell them to expect that you'll stay under. We raise them up, symbolic of this confidence. That though we will all one day go into our ultimate grave, this tent will drop off. We will rise with Christ. So great was His love for us. There is no fear. By this. By, by what? By this covenantal love that we have perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we. Isn't this amazing? The level of confidence in this old apostle who had seen every other Christian colleague die a violent death. So confident is he, that he writes a future expectation in the present tense. As he is fully resurrected, so are we.
Some of you are waiting to get to heaven. All the promises of Christ are now because He now lives in us. It casts out fear. If you have fear, you fear what? Punishment or consequences? What are you afraid of? It tells you where this heart of yours is. Fear paralyzes. Fear separates. Fear creates suspicion. It, it even leads to emotional problems. Sherry and I have two dear friends who were appointed as missionaries to Borneo in 1965. And, and in fact, this missionary, long retired, is in Borneo right now as I'm speaking on this platform. 85 years old. Gave 45 years of his life sharing the gospel in Borneo, in the cities and sometimes in the very Ulu areas, in the jungles where the only transportation was the rivers. And he was telling us a story one time about a little uh, village, one long house, 150 kilometers southeast of Kapit. If you know where Kapit is in, in Sarawak, it's very near the border of Kalimantan. One longhouse. And he shared the gospel with the entire village. They came, they have this big open area in the longhouse, and then they, on, on, the, on the back side, they have all their independent family compartments. And in that one open area, the whole village came to hear this man because, first of all, they'd never seen skin so white, so it was kind of like a sideshow. And second, they had never heard a message like that. He spoke for four hours. And, um, you know, we only have so much stamina. And so he said to them, Now, I've given the God talk for four hours now, two in the morning. I want to give you opportunity to go and rest, and we will continue in the morning. And their response was, Not even one person moved. So he said it again. Uh, we want to rest. We'd like for you to go and sleep. And then in the later morning, we will come together and I will give you more of God's talk. And finally, the headman spoke. And this is what he said. You have told us that the supreme power is not an evil spirit trying to injure us. You have told us that He's a loving God who gave His only Son for our salvation. And that if we turn from our crimes and trust Him, we may have deliverance from fear. We can have guidance for our confusion, comfort in our sorrows. How can anyone sleep after that message? So... I'm going to confess this because I just now told Caleb. What keeps me up at night? What keeps you up at night? What are you thinking about in the middle of the night, tossing and turning? I, I'm confessing to you that this pastor is still waiting for all of God's fruit to fruit out in completeness in me because 
I lay awake, anxious about everything and nothing at all. Perfect love casts out fear. I, I want to get to be that headman with a tattoo on his neck, well, maybe without the tattoo, who, who lays awake full of wonder that there's a great living, benevolent God who sees him and loves him and provides a way for him to live forever with affection, that is what should keep us up. Not anxiety over things that have, have, have not happened yet. Not anxiety about things that are wasting away as we lay awake. Dissolving in the middle of our anxiety. But love is eternal. I know this is a story you've heard a lot. Love one another. It is a command. There, there is one church in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul knew better than most. It's the church at Corinth. Paul knew the church. He knew the people because he had planted that church by the ministry that God had given him. He, he knew that they were a people who were very impressed by gifts and talents. They preferred their preachers to have gifting and be talented. He knew that they were a people who loved to fill themselves with special spiritual knowledge. In fact, he had a name for them, pneumaticon. He didn't call them beloved. He called them pneumaticon, puffed up ones. Full the pride of knowledge. He knew them well. He, he, he knew that they were the kind of people that defined their spirituality by their generous social action. And he also knew that they had not yet been perfected in love. So this is what he wrote to them. Sorry. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my own body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Friends, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table today, We don't ask that people come perfect with love fully fruited out. But we expect that God's people come repenting. The problem with the gospel is most of us, many of us, only use it once. 
Yesterday, I was sharing a seminar at a group that was about 140 or 50 young adults searching whether or not God was calling them to full-time ministry. And I met with an extraordinary young man who was in, in the midst of considering the cost of leaving his very good job and going to pastor a church. I asked him, what is holding you back from pastoring a church? He said, my church is holding me back. I said, how, how, how do you mean your church is holding you back? He said, the most mature believers in the church, those who have been there the longest, are the worst. The problem is not the people. The problem is the way the people learned about the gospel which is the gospel calls me to repent of my sins and turn to Jesus. And I did that when I was seven years old. But friends, if that's the last time I turn to Jesus, I guarantee you right now this 61-year-old Christian is the worst. Because the gospel is, yes, for seven-year-olds, but it is also for eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds. It's for every day of that year old. Every single day, this veil needs to turn back to the King of glory and say, God, cleanse me anew because I wander around in this world and you know my heart. It's prone to wander. Bring me back. Cleanse me afresh. And so we come to the table again. Not perfect, but repenting. So as we come together, here again is the question we must answer. As we come to this table of broken-hearted, sacrificial affection, when the world looks at Ian, When church members interact with me, do they see and experience a love that can only be explained by the intervention of a loving God? I want to invite you to bow with me right now. And as we bow together in the presence of a loving God, I want to invite you with me to do what Scripture commands. Why do we do it? Because verse 20 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Lying about what? Lying about their love of God. You cannot say, I love God, I just hate His people. Pastors cannot say, I love ministry if it wasn't for the people. If God is in us, we will love well 
the ones he died for. As you examine your hearts, hear the words of a broken-hearted missionary written to a broken people. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous. It's not boastful or proud or rude. Love doesn't demand its own way. Love is not irritable. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful. It endures through every circumstance. Love never ends. This love is not brotherly love. It's not romantic love. It's the kind of love that only Christ gives when veiled in all His glory in the flesh and blood of His people. Father God, we thank You that so great was Your love for us that You sent this perfect Son, who lived and endured this broken world as we now do, and yet without sin. The crosses of eternity were not calling for His name. He was innocent, and yet He gladly went to the cross, pleaded on our behalf, shed His blood to wash us clean and now fills us with His glory so that the fruit of love could cast out fear so that we could know and experience the evidence of You in us and so that all who experience us would experience this unusual persevering, sacrificial love. Father, we come to You turning again, just like we needed to turn yesterday. We come in confidence because You are the judge who loves us. We ask You to forgive us, for we have not always loved well. And God, we are incapable. So Jesus, love your people through your people. Energize us. Animate us in gentleness and mercy and kindness and persevering love. Do this so that you will be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.